It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. My name is Craig Hansen. And today I'm joined by James Snedden, a West Ham United fan based in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. James is the owner of From the Anvil, an independent blog and YouTube channel dedicated to all things West Ham, and also a writer for Green Street Hammers, a West Ham fan blog on the fan-sided network. James is a budding sports journalist and recent broadcasting graduate who's been a fan of the Irons since the age of 10. He's sure to have lots of stories to tell us about the club from the past to the present and the future today on the Sportacos Football Stories podcast. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, we urge you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is extremely important to us, and we thank you very much in advance for helping our little podcast to grow. Okay, James, West Ham are, uh, from the outsider's point of view, in uh, one of their best moments for... You know, certainly my lifetime, or at least in the last sort of decade, it's uh, things are going really well. Um, so I want to get into all of that with you. But before we get down to sort of, um, you know, the second stage Moyes era and everything that's going on right now. First of all, I just want to get to know you a little bit. And I wonder if you could explain to us sort of your story in terms of when and how you became a West Ham fan. Um, well... I suppose it's what uh, when I started to put my son was around, say nine or ten years old. So, and I'm now 24, so it's been 14 years, almost, um, yeah, around 14 years since I started supporting the club. Um, I must admit, I didn't really support West Ham until I was around nine. After I watched um, the infamous 4-3 defeat to Tottenham Hotspur at the bowling ground in the 2006 or seven season, it's infamous in a way because that was Carlos Tevez's first goal in a West Ham shirt. I just remember and watching the him score an iconic free kick, which went off the bar and in. Um, I think Mark Noble scored in the game as well there, but I just remember watching that and just took an interest in West Ham from that point onwards. Um, 
I remember also in that same year, West Ham losing 4-1 to Chelsea at Stamford Bridge and the Great Escape, which West Ham fans know it as, which saw West Ham survive on the last day of the season, thanks to, again, a Carlos Tevez goal at Old Trafford, where West Ham won 1-0 against Manchester United. So, uh, it was Carlos Tevez was the reason why I started supporting West Ham and just uh, got a connection with the club ever since, pretty much. And where where were you born, James? Were you born in London, near the ground or I anything like that? No, I was actually born in South Yorkshire. And I lived there all my life. And so, ah, okay. And so when you went to these games, then you were travelling down from Yorkshire? No, I only ever went to the bowling ground once. I had actually a season ticket at Doncaster because that was my nearest club. Um, I, I, I had a lot of ties to Doncaster. My stepbrother actually played for the academy there. And uh, obviously, with being my local team, that's where I had a season ticket right from the ages of around 13 to 16. But I still supported West Ham as a Premier League club. And so what compelled your your dad, I guess, or whoever it was to take you along to the Berlin ground? Just because my brother was an Arsenal fan. He'd been over to see Arsenal a few times in the Emirates Cup and I hadn't been to see a Premier League game before. So I do, yeah, that was the reason why. So it was sort of a, a random Premier League game that he chose and then for you it turned into a lifelong obsession. Well, a lifelong memory, yeah. As well, it was It was in 2010 as well, I was 12. Okay, and so and and now you're based in Edmonton, Alberta, right? Yeah. So, uh, when when did that happen? Is that when did you you move there, and and how has that sort of um, changed things as far as your um, following of the club? Because I suppose you have to watch the games at a much different time now. Well, I started, well, my dad actually moved out to Canada around 2013 for his job. Um, he worked engineering. There was a lot of jobs in Canada. In what part in Western Canada at the time in in that industry? I came one year later completed my high school education in Canada and then attended university for four years when I was over there. Um, as far as supporting West Ham was concerned, I started having to obviously get up a lot earlier to watch the games, even getting up at some ridiculous time, like 5.30 in the morning if it was a 12 o'clock kickoff. Uh, there was oh, a, God. Yeah, I have this time. Um, but it's, it actually works out a lot better, though, because, I mean, I, it's literally just wake up in the morning and I, I'm just watching West Ham game straight away. I'm not having to wait, like, say, six, seven hours just to get to the facts. So that's a benefit, but it is a, sometimes early getting up in the morning. Um, another side effect is because I run, obviously, my own YouTube channel and I, I'm i very um, news-based. I don't end up receiving the news until six hours after the fact because I'm usually fast asleep when it happens. So it has definitely changed how I... Uh, get my news and how I um, follow the club, but it hasn't changed it as a whole because I still do get to watch the games. So you were born and raised in uh, in South Yorkshire, and then when you were sort of uh, a young lad, you went along to this game at the Bulling Ground, mm. and, uh, and and you've been following the, the club since. For, I, I guess, a few more years you were in England, and then since then you moved to Canada. I wondered, during that time, you mentioned Carlos Tevez being a real sort of um, a memorable character in those early days. Who has sort of impressed you more recently, maybe through your high school years that you mentioned in university years, who who sort of took on that mantle as the player or maybe it was a coach who sort of captured your imagination? Oh, that's a good one. Um, there were quite a few players, actually. A lot of like players that West Ham fans will never forget, like the West Ham streets wouldn't forget. When I was in high school in Canada, notable as I was on Mark Noble, obviously, because he's well, he's still there. Um, I would say, honestly, underrated partnership in Enver Valencia and Diafrosacco. That was another one that I really liked. Um, players that impressed me, um, players such as Declan Rice, obviously. 
because everyone knows now. I think everyone's now starting to appreciate how classy he is and how excellent of a player he is and how vital he is to West Ham. But also the players who um, did things off the pitch as well, like Robert Snodgrass, who was really involved in the club's charity work and involved in promoting the club. And he's always going to have a special place in West Ham fan's hearts because of that. Um, so, What was it like going to high school in Canada as a West Ham fan? I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you were probably the only one in school, right? Yeah, probably. What was what was that like? Were there were there sort of other football fans there? Maybe who I, I don't know if they, would would there be even an MLS franchise near there or something? Well, the nearest MLS franchise is the Vancouver Whitecaps. That's one province away. Um, I was the only West Ham fan at, at the high school. Um, I have to be honest. There was a lot of plastic fans at the school. Like a kid that walked around in a Man City jersey, and um, when I mentioned and this kid who walked around in an Arsenal jersey, when I mentioned to him. Like, who's your favourite all-time player? I said, oh, so I said, yeah, well, it's, it's not going to be someone like Dennis Burkamp then. I said, who? And I'm like, that, that's like uh, being a West Ham fan and not knowing who Bobby Moore is. I say, you don't, you don't know who <laughs> yeah. Dennis Burkamp is. You're like, just a fake fan. You probably, it's like, there's a Man City fan as well at school who, who's, I said, you probably only started supporting the club since it, since it got tons of money in it. But you weren't there, say, back when it was in the championship. So you don't, you don't know that's the thing with North America. With, uh, well, North, I'm not saying North Americans don't know anything about football slash soccer because they, that's absolutely not the case. But they don't probably understand it on the same level as, say, British people do because they don't They just don't maybe connect with the club as much or just don't know the history of it. Or, yeah, I think it's. I've had a few American guests on um, for different clubs, you know, including we had a Man City fan on from Texas and, and these kind of guys. And I think. I try and compare it to sort of when you meet a guy here in the UK who follows NBA or NFL. Like, I suppose, I don't know, but usually they probably go for like one of the bigger teams with like the star player because it's sort of just like a hobby, isn't it? It's not like a, like a real, you don't have a connect. Like you said, they don't have that connection to the club. They just see it more as something that they watch for a bit of fun yeah. and they know like the big famous player who's there now because they're rich. And I sort of get that. Um, but but I guess then it well, it must have been um what was it it must have been a low a slightly lonelier experience in a way than most normal fans would have because normally you'd be I don't know at school and most of the other kids there would support the team you do or at least even if you were say a plastic United fan from here in the Midlands there'd still be plenty of those around for you to like bond with. What was it like sort of not being able to discuss the games and everything with anyone? I guess that's where the internet came in. Not really, it didn't really bother me that I wasn't able to discuss the games because. Uh... You know, North American sports in general is a lot more um, wider than the UK, shall we say. And um, I think, yeah, not being able to discuss it wasn't really a big issue issue for me at the time. Uh, the internet stuff actually, it actually, yeah, I guess if you kind of start when I was in Mostia High School, I started my own West Ham blog. Um, and then over the next few years, turned it into a YouTube channel and just kept going from there to this present day. But And so now you are involved in the discussions online now on Twitter and yeah, stuff like that, right? You're sort I'm, of a voice in the community. Yeah, now that I'm older, and just because I don't have the means to do so and I had the time to do it. You mentioned going to the Berlin ground back in the day. Yes. Have you been able to get over to the new place? No, I haven't. Well, I've always gone back home to Doncaster to see my family there, but I've not been able to make the trip down to London. That is on the list, though that's on something that I do plan to do. 
Um, I was thinking of going to go and see West Ham in Europe, actually, because I saved up some money and go and see West Ham in the Europa League. But that couldn't happen because of travel restrictions and COVID-19. Um, I was thinking of going to Austria to watch them play Rapid Vienna. But, and I'll just point this out now, what infuriated West Ham fans was the fact that Austria went into a 20-day lockdown shortly before the game happened, so everybody wouldn't have been able to go anyway. So I would have liked to have gone to see West Ham in Europe because that would have been a personal goal of mine, but it's, it didn't come into fruition, unfortunately. Yeah, we've had a lot of stories like that from, from people who yeah. had plans, you know, trips planned and everything to, to go and see their teams, and then COVID ruined it all. But it's good that you're you're looking forward to it. How... I guess, um, how optimistic are you about the stadium? Because I know that when it first happened, the transition, there was a lot of, um, it seemed like there was a lot of toxicity about it yeah. and it, it seemed like it didn't go that well. But I don't know a lot. Obviously, I'm just an outsider, but it looks like on the TV now, it's like buzzing and looks like a great atmosphere. From what you can tell online, does it seem like it's, and when you watch the games, does it seem like it's a good place to go now, something to really look forward to going to now? Um, well, what I will say is that when it, when it first opened, and nobody liked it because it didn't really have any identity to West Ham. West Ham being a traditional working-class football club, the bowling ground was like a West Ham fans' church. Everybody honoured that place. Everybody loved it. It was a big part of West Ham's heritage. When people thought of West Ham, they thought the bowling ground. I'd say the bowling ground are one of the best atmospheres in the Premier League because of how intimidating it was for opposition clubs to come there. Um, the London Stadium didn't have that. It just felt like a huge empty bowl where fans couldn't really uh, cheer as loud. Um, it wasn't about West Ham's identity. It seemed like West Ham had gone from being a working-class football club to a massive corporation because of the stadium size. You could buy popcorn in the stadium and stuff like that. You could, oh, God. could get <laughs> yeah, got free Wi-Fi in the stadium as well, which you couldn't at the bowling ground. Um, and things like that. Um, it became like a bit of a tourist attraction rather than it did a um, football stadium um, the reason why the atmosphere has improved in the last few months is because of David Moyes and the team playing well and um, I think in, overall fans have come to accept the new stadium and just say that look we're not going to get the bowling ground back so we've got to make best of what we've got which is the bowl as we refer, it, refer to it as and make it uh, our home because it's up to the fans to do it 60,000 West Ham fans in a stadium who, who've got the task of making it um, loud and though I think now fans are starting to accept it a bit more, starting to um, enjoy coming to the stadium, enjoy watching the football, getting behind the team and the manager. And that's another reason why I think it's become um, what it is now, just a better place. Well, it certainly does seem like it um, from the TV. Yeah. But um, I know that now you're um, sort of, you know, you have a YouTube channel and then you're kind of vocal on Twitter and you're involved in the sort of West Ham ecosystem um, in terms of like giving giving opinions. I wanted to ask you something that, I've been thinking about a lot recently in, with some of our chats is ex-players who appear in the media and sort of how well they represent the club and its fans. So every club, ha- especially the, the Premier League ones, have sort of a few legends who you'll hear on TalkSport or you'll see on Sky Sports or you see whatever. And some of them you'll think, oh, you know, that guy's so articulate. You know, I'm really proud that he played for us and sort of happy to see them and sort of brings back a good memory. And then others... You might be like, oh, this guy's embarrassing, you know, like I'm gutted that he's on TV all the time and that he played for us for so long. Can you think of any former West Ham players who, whenever you do see them giving analysis or uh, on TV or you hear them on the radio or whatever it may be, that you think um, that sort of make you proud that, they, that they're an ex-player of yours? Uh, yeah, as well as Paolo Di Canio. 
because of how he talks about how he okay, talks about cool. the club and the fact that he sides with the fans saying he'd never work with David Sullivan, not even for one day, the current owner. Um, Tony Cotty does a pretty decent job, actually. He's often involved in Sky Sports. He's one that I can think of who's um, definitely represented the club really well because they're both club legends in their own right. Um, so I think who else we've, we've had? Um, Slavon Bilic as well. He's appeared on a few... Yeah. Um, as TV shows as a pundit, and he's done a good job talking about. The yeah, he's be, he he tends to do a lot of the World Cup and Euros and that kind of stuff, doesn't he? On ITV, I think he does. Yeah, um, I always think he does a good job. Yeah, he does. Uh, Smart guy. I think who else? It's about it. Well, really. let's go back quickly to this Decanio um, thing that you mentioned there about the current ownership. That's something that I'd like to get into because, again, as an outsider, obviously I don't know a lot about it. I know that. It seems like, um, you know, nowadays um, there's lots of sort of fan groups that aren't happy with their ownership, whether it's, you know, Mike Ashley, who's now gone, that was highly publicized, and Glazers, and I suppose even, I think even Arsenal want rid of their guy, the, the Cronkies or whatever. But the West Ham one, you, you hear it touched on here and there in the mainstream, but I've never I've never really um, had it explained to me exactly what's going on there. So from the outsider's point of view, it looks like, oh, they're doing well, you know, they're up there, what's the problem? Can you tell me what, what what's the sort of... Um, the relationship between the fans and the ownership. Why is it so toxic? It's just the owners um, have sold West Ham out. In, in a way, David Gold and David Sullivan and Karen Brady have told a lot of lies about what they were going to do to the club and have just made false hope and false promises over the last 10 years or so. Um, every manager they've worked under has been thrown under the bus. They haven't backed any manager financially and they just sign players that they please. They don't really want to spend a lot of money or invest into the club. They said that the, they were going to have a world-class stadium with a world-class squad, yet they signed loads of free agent loan players and never gave the manager any decisions as to who to sign. Um, they would um, strip assets out of the club. We had a rising debt under them. and They just didn't even... They didn't. Um, back any manager, like I say, the the fans couldn't get behind them either because because of this. It was mainly David Sullivan because of things that he kept doing to the club. Uh, him being the majority shareholder, he was the one who was doing most of the damage. And the thing is, the billionaires and they just didn't want to put money into the club as well. And they they claimed that they were poor and and said they had zero pounds in the transfer budget last year, even <laughs> though they were billionaires. Um, like I say, and saying they had to sell... sounds like a familiar story. There, yeah, <laughs> saying they had to sell players in order to buy, which was absolute lies. They just loan FC, loan to buy FC is what we became under them. Uh, Karen Brady said we, that the stadium, the stadium would always prioritize West Ham games over anything else. There's been a, games had to be rearranged because of concerts and baseball games. You wouldn't have got that at the bowling ground. Um, there were fans who just kept mass protesting to get them out. But weirdly enough that you mentioned the ownership, there's now been a change because we've had a 27% share been bought by a Czech billionaire called Daniel Krutinsky, who is... Oh, yeah, I read about this. Yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, and he's bought a 27% share in the club, and it means Sullivan's cut his shares by 12%. And there's no one at West Ham now owns 50% of the club. No one has half of the club now because of it. Krutinsky's going to pump in more money into transfer budget but at least he's honest 
about what his intention says. West Ham's not going to spend big in January because I want to get the debt reduced. Um, there's been a complete overhaul at the club in the last few months. We finally got a scout to the director of football because we never had that in the past. In right now for transfer windows. Partly because David Moyes has demanded for it. Um, Kuczynski's now come in and it's a it's a good piece of business because he understands football. He's been the co-owner of Sparta Prague since 2004. He's got stakes in American chains such as Foot Locker and Macy's. He's got uh, stakes in Royal Mail and Sainsbury's as well. And he's a good investor and a good financial profiler. So having him at West Ham is certainly a boost and it hinders Sullivan's power at the end of the day. Well, you mentioned there that sort of um, you know that the that Sullivan and Gold weren't and Brady weren't exactly backing managers, including Moyes, I guess, in the transfer market. Well, with that in mind, I want to come on now to Moyes' performance. But before we do that, we're going to take one very quick break, and we're back, James. So, David Moyes. Then it seemed like in the first stint, things didn't quite go to plan, and now second time around, yeah, things are pretty. Uh, going pretty miraculously well, I would say. The first thing I want to ask you about this sort of last couple of years is how did you react initially to the announcement that he was coming on for a second stint? Because I know there might be a few West Ham fans who could say that, you know, even then they were singing, you know, the praise of this appointment, but surely this was pretty widely criticised at the time. Did, Did anyone foresee that he could, after what happened the first time around, did anyone imagine, and given his previous experience, since Everton at United, Sociedad, Sunderland. Did anyone think when this was announced, oh, it's a great job, you know, we're going places? No, I didn't exactly say that. People were a bit 50-50 about it. Some people said, oh, it just shows a lack of ambition from the board because Ancelotti went to Everton around the time. Pochettino had just been sat by Spurs. People say, why couldn't we have an ambitious appointment instead of something cheap? Um, other fans were like, well, look, David Moyes needs a full season at West Ham to actually prove himself because he wasn't given that in his first stint. And in his second stint for the first six months, he wasn't given that either. Just needed time to um, get his message across to the players and to change up the team. I was actually personally quite patient with him. I just said, let's get things moving. And just before the lockdown happened in March 2020, West Ham was improving a little bit. And after the lockdown, bloody uh, hell, it was like, whoa. The whole team had completely changed. Antonio was a goal-scoring machine. And uh, then in his first full season, he got West Ham into Europe and our highest-ever Premier League points tally. So, And the, the great work is continuing this season. Absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, we're fourth in the table. We're not... We're usually around... We compare... We see, West Ham fans compare it to Manuel Pellegrini right now. Um, compare the Moyes era with the Pellegrini era. And um, under Pellegrini... Yeah, we didn't really have any kind of identity. We just looked a bit lost, um, especially in the 1920 season. And now with Moyes here, we actually do have something about us. We're not in a relegation fight. We're at the top end of the table, which obviously I prefer. No doubt about that. But um, we are moving forward with David Moyes. We're going places with this manager now. And we're actually really going places. We're not just saying that, just because we've won like two or three games on the bounce. We actually feel that we have the confidence to do things so no absolutely anything can happen in football obviously but I think you'd be crazy to not be optimistic I mean this has been like consistent period of great form now over you know it's almost season and a half but I wanted to ask you but I think you've already kind of answered it now but I wanted to ask you 
what has he done the second time around that's different? But I guess you would just say time then is what he was do- he's, he's done. He's been given time. It's not time. Uh, time's one factor, but it's not the factor. I think, if anything, he's just um, managed to um, take his time. Well, actually, yeah, he's taken his time with the team. He's taken his time with the team because he's, he's, he always is patient looking for what he calls the right players for his team. Um, the problem with the, the Pellegrini team, it had too many personalities in there. Too many big egos. And those big ego, look at me, everybody, I'm carrying the weight of the team, I'm better than you all, attitude doesn't go down well with him. That's exactly what we had with Hilaire and Anderson, is the fact they had two, they were two bigger personalities. Anderson especially was, and that's why he didn't settle in the Moyes team. Ben Rama, Anderson's replacement, didn't have that attitude. So that was another thing that you could look at, is the fact that Moyes doesn't like players with bad attitudes. Um, he keeps the players grounded. He puts them under strict training rituals, but also gives them um, enough freedom so that they can still talk to him and approach him as someone who is like a um, inf- positive influence. Still, um, he's demanded the best of his players. He's demanded the right signings for the right money, and not just wasting money. Like forty-five million pounds for Sebastian Hilaire was criminal. Looking back at it, because he wasn't worth that kind of money. However, we sign players. But Alaire, I wanted to ask you about Alaire because that that is a fascinating case there. Because I know that um, players obviously don't always work, um, you know, where they go. There's a number of factors. And you mentioned there the attitude and maybe a clash of personalities, whatever it was. But he was so highly rated when he came in and had a terrible spell. And then since leaving, he's the top scorer in the Champions League. I think he's also the top scorer in the Dutch League. He's absolutely banging them in for Ajax. He looks like, you know, up there yeah. with Lewandowski this season. What's going on? What what went wrong there? What why is? I mean, did did you think he had the potential then, or do you think he's just getting lucky now? What what what's going on? Premier League didn't suit him, in all honesty, and hmm. it wasn't it Premier League because it's a mobile league. The Premier League, he wasn't really a mobile striker; he just tended to stay in the box all the time. Mo, and Mikel Antonio is at least a little bit more mobile, even though Antonio doesn't score from outside the box. I can't remember a time when he ever did for West Ham. If I'm really honest with you, but. Antonio at least moves around more and is more physically strong. Haller, I'm just going to, like I say to you, man, Haller was never worth £45 million. He was worth about £20 million. £45 million on Haller was, in fact, Pellegrini's spending was criminal. £100 million in his first summer window, £72 million in his second. The only two good, three good players he really signed were Fabianski, Diop and Fornals. Everybody else was just too much or it showed how naive or incompetent his scouting network was. But some fans are still comparing the two eras, even though David Moyes is picking up the slack for all that now, you could argue, yeah. and achieving more. Yeah, because if you look at the, well, the Pellegrini football, some of it was absolutely criminal. Like he played 34-year-old Pablo Zabaleta up against Alanson Maximam. <laughs> which was like yeah. hair and tortoise, literally. literally. Well, actually not hair and tortoise, like hair and bloody gazelle something like that <laughs> yeah couldn't keep up with him yeah it's a, that's a tough one yeah it was a, like a tortoise and a cheetah yeah right yeah bad we didn't have an identity under pellegrini like i say we had nothing under him really um one good season was all right i mean stabilized the club for one season but after that he ran out of ideas um you can't even say that the board didn't back him because they gave him 100 percent control of the transfers david Moyes does have a say in who he wants to sign because he's put his foot down with the board and demanded it. 
And he's demanded that we get in ahead of recruitment and some scouts. And the head of recruitment right now is uh, Manchester City's former director of recruiting, Rob Newman, who signed Aguero and y- Yaya Torre and players such as that caliber. Um, not bad. Not bad at all. And um, we got that because Moyes forced it. However, the thing is, it's taken David Moyes' appointment and around 10 years for this to actually get into fruition. Well, I wanted to, to move move back to the the real positivity of this season and how well things are going. How long do you think the squad can keep up this momentum in the league, first of all? So like you said, you're fourth at the moment, right up there. Um, I think the squad, I wouldn't say it's, um, obviously it hasn't got the depth of, you know, Man United or Liverpool or anything like that. Well, to be fair, Liverpool don't even have that much depth, but Man United or Chelsea or whatever, but but um, there's there's some decent players in there on the fringes who don't even make the first team, right? Who come in in the Europa League and seem to do a good job. Do you think there's enough bodies there to sustain um, this sort of Champions League dream or at least Europa League again, which I think is very realistic? Do you think that there's any business you can do in January just to plug a couple of gaps? I mean, how optimistic are you about the league finish? Well, depth is the key word in this because... West Ham struggled with depth over the years, and that's due to lack of investment. Um, we've always been had to be very careful with players not to get injured because we haven't got anyone adequate enough in the past to replace them. And uh, now that we have, do have some kind of depth now, it's a little bit more of something that we can fall back on. But you are right, we do need to invest money in January. Kratinsky, who I mentioned earlier, he did admit that we're not going to spend tons in January, and that's fine, that's honest, and I'll take that all day long. But we need to get in another left-footed centre-back because Ogbonna's done for the season. We need to get in probably another left-back. Oh, yeah, that's a bad injury. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, we need to probably get in another left-back because Cresswell's now injured. And uh, also, I think we need like another attacking midfielder and a, definitely a striker. Uh, Jesse Lingard prob- could be on his way back right now because I don't see him making any real chance of getting a starting place in the Man United eleven. Uh, he should have been coming back from the start of the season, absolutely. I think. I don't know why he wanted to stay and fight for his place and all that. I think it was naive and and a bad decision for him and West Ham. I, it, that would have been a perfect marriage from the beginning of the season. Yeah, and it dragged on so long about saying he wanted to come and they didn't because of his family. It is, Lingard needs to be real. He needs to go where he's loved. Man United fans have grilled him for several years. Yeah. West Ham fans never did it once. To just go back to where he's loved and with a coach that he respects. I totally agree. And I think if you can get a few of those other players in, you can keep doing this balance with um, the Premier League and the Europa League to good effect. We'll have to wait and see how, just how well you can pull it off. But to, to focus then on Europe, I know people will say the opposition is a bit weaker or whatever than the side you play week in, week out in the Premier League. But I don't, I don't think that's quite as true as people make out. But um, you've made it look easy so far, right? You know, mm. the performances and the results likewise have been unbelievable. Um, and how how big are West Ham fans dreaming right now? I mean, who's to say you couldn't win this realistically? Yeah, exactly. Like we can dream. We can have the right to dream right now because of how well the club's done in the Europa League. First time in a long time that we've been in a European competition at this stage, and um, well, we've just blown it out, a lot of teams out of the water. And that was—I'm not going to lie to you—that was a tough group. Really, it was a good group, but it was a tough group because we had played teams like Genk who have been stabilising themselves in the Europa League and in the, even the Champions League for some time. We've got Rapid Vienna, who's used to playing Europe, and Dino Azogra, who used to play in the Europa League. And those were hostile stadiums to go to as well. 
because of their atmospheres. I think Zagreb were in the quarter. Weren't they the ones who were in the quarters last year? I think so. Can't remember who they lost to in the quarters, but yeah, they've gone far. They they were definitely a real threat. But you made everyone in the group look it's like men against boys. I mean, did you expect it to be that easy? No, didn't actually. I didn't. I think we would we'd, we'd top the group and then go through to the knockout stages like this. Unbelievable stuff. Um, but I, I think um, I, you could tell me about this because I haven't got the table in front of me. Have you guaranteed top now, or yes. can you still finish second? Guaranteed top. Yeah, that's good because I know that the Champions League teams drop out, and it looks like this year there's going to be some really tasty ones dropping down. I think Dortmund, Barcelona. I mean, have have any West Ham fans been talking about that kind of stuff about sort of dreaming about yeah. trips to the the new camp or uh, trips to Borussia Dortmund and all these well, huge clubs? Personally, I would avoid it because it means that we could end up getting knocked out either way. But who knows? You can you can dream <laughs> on, but. Um, yeah, the week, that's that's the beauty of it right now. Like I say, you, you can dream. West Ham fans have the right to dream and be positive about the club. Topping Europa League group and then possibly facing even Barcelona. Tell you now, three years ago, I would ne- at this time, I would never have said that. Because three years ago, like, no, not even four years ago this month, we were in a relegation fight. There was no talk of getting into Europe. We never looked like we were going to get there. But now we are. So, you know, it's weird how football can just change in, within a few years and you can go up or down. But this is going up. And it's happened very more quicker That's than we thought. football. Yeah, right. You can now. You can dream. You have got something great to look forward to. Um, from dreaming to maybe not worrying, but just sort of concern. What do you think about the whole Declan Rice thing? Um, can you tell me, like, how many years has he got left on his contract, and do you think you'd be able to get him to renew? And does that depend on how well you keep doing? I mean, if you get Champions League. I mean, surely he'd be much more inclined to stay, right? Yeah, I believe he's got three years left on his contract, and he's never, ever, ever tried to leave the club by his by his own will. He's never forced to move out of the club. He's never done that. Um, he's twenty two years old. He's vice captain right now. He's expected to take over the cap full captaincy from Mark Noble anyway. Um, I think there's always going to be rumours that he's going to end up leaving the club. Um, I do dread the day when it actually does happen because we're probably going to end up like what Villa were like without Grealish. You know, and that's the classic example of what losing your best player can do to you. It can just cause you to falter very quickly. Um, that's the worry if we lose Declan Rice. So just hold on to him for as long as we can, I think. But obviously, he deserves to be playing in the Champions League. He deserves to be playing, um, you know, Champions League football, probably winning a few trophies as well. So. It's hard to say, really. Chelsea's been in the mix for him for quite some time because he used to be in their academy. But um, now it's the same. Manchester City could want him as well. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd he'd do well to think carefully, I guess. Yeah, he needs to consider um, it. Yeah, because, I mean, Chelsea, for example, it would depend on if there's any... If he's going to go in there and compete with Kante, Jorginho, Kovacic and Loftus-Cheek... I mean, I'd argue he still could get in that team, but will he necessarily? It's not guaranteed, is it? It's not nailed on. No. And even at Man City as well, it's he might want to think about that long and hard because I think he's better off playing every week at West Ham and pushing them right up to the top of the table and challenging than, you know, winning stuff but never, not actually being involved in it. I mean, look at Ross Barkley. I mean, he was, you know, the, the world was at his feet or whatever and he moved and sort of now he's out on loan every other year and he never plays when he is there. So it's yeah, I mean Grealish hasn't Grealish has gone well. I mean he plays every time when he isn't injured, doesn't he? So I think maybe City, I suppose, have got a better track record maybe in buying English players and actually playing them because they played yeah. Sterling, they play, they don't tend to buy them and bench them like Chelsea do. So anyway, 
Before we um, we move on and see if we have any questions here, taking everything into account, how what would be a good season, sort of realistic ambitions that, you know, maybe you don't get everything you want, but you could say at the end of the season, okay, I'm, I'm pleased with that in terms of the league, Europe and the Cups as well. Uh, probably the ambitions to get into Europe as well. The Cups, we're getting further than we ever have been in the past. We're into the quarterfinals of the Carabao Cup. Obviously, we're into the knockout stage. Put Man City out. First time they've been out in four years or something, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so the first time they lost was in October 2016. <laughs> so that was, that's an achievement in itself. So, so what do you think? Do you think that there could be, you could be win, actually winning a cup this year? I don't know. Like I say, we can dream. But I would like to win a cup, worst time win a cup in, in my lifetime. But what would you choose, cup or finishing fourth? Uh, finishing fourth, the Champions League. That's a pragmatic answer, I think. Yeah, it's stuck between a rock and our place on that one. But finishing fourth would be, yeah, just an achievement as well. It's hard to say, man. For the long term future of the club, obviously finishing fourth is better because more money, and maybe you can do it again, and maybe you can sort of like, you know, build on that. Whereas winning the cup doesn't necessarily do anything for you, but it would be an amazing day out and all that wouldn't it so it's yeah. emotional it's mm-hmm. like pragmatism versus emotion yeah anyway before we check our twitter to see if we have any west Ham related questions we're going to take one more very quick break and we're back so we do have one question james from you've got mail a lad called jake hastings and jake asks who is your favorite west Ham player and why that is a good one um I've got quite a few, actually. I don't really just have one. Um, I like Jared Bowen a lot. I think he's one of the best wingers in the Premier League this season. Um, the only problem I do have with Bowen is sometimes his finishing is a little awkward. I uh, really like Mikel Antonio, obviously, because he's a beast of us forward. He's our only striker as well, which is you know worrying, but um, still he does a good job at top. Declan Rice, obviously, we've just mentioned how important he is. I do like Rice. One player that I've started to get a big appreciation for is actually Pablo Fornells because he's um, he struggled when he first signed for West Ham because he wasn't being played in the right position. He was being, but under David Moyes, he became a pretty quickly changed player. Um, Fornells looks a lot more comfortable playing as a winger now and uh, he's got more ball movement now because of that. Um, I think, although his form's not been good in the last few games, four now's overall has become a more well-rounded player. He's another player I really do like. So if I have to answer that question, I actually have about four, which are Antonio, Rice, Bowen and Fornals. Yeah, they're all great players and they've all come on a long way in the last sort of year and a half. And I'm really happy for Fornals because I think there was always a great player in there, but just he struggled, like he said, in the beginning. and, And now I think he often looks really, really dangerous, like you said, with Bowen as well. There's a lot of um, a lot of attacking threat in that front line. But like you said, maybe a slight worry about depth. I mean, I suppose in the wide areas, it's not too bad because you could bring in like Yarmolenko or something, but uh, or Lanzini and stuff. But in the middle, like if Antonio gets... What, what is the plan B if he gets injured? Do you play like a false nine? Well, if Antonio gets injured... Yeah, I mean, is there... Because there isn't an actual second striker, you said, right? Bowen usually go, it's Bowen that usually goes up top on his own but that actually okay. is a hindrance because he hasn't got the physicality Antonio has he doesn't have the height exactly Antonio can head balls Bowen can't do it because he's not tall enough you need a, an, another Antonio basically a backup Antonio yeah, and we're looking at it for January right In now January. we're already linked with a player are there any are there any rumours are there any or are there any sort of speculations from fans going on oh, you know this guy's 
contracts up or this guy looks like he wouldn't cost that much and he could do the job, anything like oh, that? Oh, yeah. The ones that right now is Basil Ford, Arthur Cabral. He's got 46 okay. goals in 73 games for Basel. He has 25 goals and 8 assists in all competitions in Switzerland this season, so far. And he could be available for around £12 million. And he's got the same kind of physicality, presence, all that? Yeah. Okay, that could be a good shot. I, I, I did not know about him before today, but it, it sounds like he has all the attributes to be maybe sort of coming on if you need him, if there's an injury or playing in the Europa League on the course. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get that over the line because, yeah, you definitely do need like more than one striker, I guess, unless you're going to do the Man City way and have just seven attacking midfielders. But anyway, before we let you get out of here, James, we're just going to do a little bit of trivia that we always do with our guests. Okay. Uh, we're going to do a little thing called Do You Know Your Heroes? <laughs> So I've got eight questions here for you. Um, only a couple of them are from the really, really, really old days. Uh, most of them are sort of a little bit more contemporary. And it's to do with sort of dates and stats and things like that. And uh, I think you'll you'll find it relatively easy, I hope. But we'll get started here with question number one, which is West Ham have won the FA Cup three times. Maybe they'll be trying to do that again this year. But when did they last win it? 1980. Very good. 1979-80, one for one. Question number two. The Hammers are gunning for the Europa League this year, but when did they last lift European silverware? 1999. Very good. Correct. The UEFA Intertoto Cup in 1999. Um, Question number three. Who remains West Ham's all-time top goalscorer? In general, it's Vic Watson, but in the Premier League, it's Mikel Antonio. Very good. In general, we we had the 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 uh, all um all times sort of all competitions one. So it is Vic Watson, as you said, three hundred and twenty six goals between nineteen twenty and nineteen thirty five. We are flying through these three for three. Uh, question four, returning to something a little bit more contemporary now than the nineteen twenties. Which player provided the most assists for West Ham in the Premier League last season? Most assists. Oh. I thought this one would be a tricky one because I was very surprised when I read this on the Premier League website. Uh... Oh, I'm stuck between two players. I'm actually going to say either Aaron Cresswell or Felipe Anderson. Would you care to try one of the two? Anderson? Oh, Aaron Cresswell. Oh, So close. So close. I guess um, showing again this this new the importance of fullbacks in today's game. See it with Reese James and um, Chilwell at Chelsea and Cancelo at Man City and Aaron Creswell actually got eight assists as a fullback for West Ham last season. Uh, but we are three out of four. Question number five: Who was the first player not born in the British Isles that includes the Republic of Ireland to captain West Ham? I think. Not including the Republic of Ireland. No, so yeah, including. So this player is not from sort of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, or the Republic of Ireland. They're from completely nowhere near here. And they were the first Um, one of that to Captain West Ham. This is niche knowledge for sure. Well, the first captain not from Europe was Lucas Neal. I know that. But this person can be from Europe, but not from the British Isles. Decanio? Correct, Paolo Di Canio. 
between 2001 and 2003. Um, and also, um, no, sorry, he, he, he was captain 2001 to 2003, but he played 1999 to 2003, of course, being yeah. Italian. He was the first sort of non-Irish or British uh, West Ham captain. Uh, so we have four out of five. Question number six. When was the last time the club made it through the qualifying phases into the proper stages of a European competition? It would have been sometime in it would have been sometime in the nineteen eighties. Uh I'm gonna say nineteen eighty six. According to my research, they actually made the first round proper of the UEFA Cup in two thousand six seven. Where they lost four 0 oh, on yeah. aggregate to Palermo of Italy. Oh yeah. But you're right that there are not many of these examples. So this, I knew that question was gonna be incredibly tough. This one probably won't be quite as tough because I imagine the horror is freshly imprinted in your mind. Two years running in 2016 and 2017, West Ham were knocked out in the Europa League qualifying phases by the same team. Who was that team? Astragugu. <laughs> I was going to ask you, how do you pronounce it? Astragugu, Astra Georgi, or maybe it is Google, I don't know. They got relegated from the Romanian Premier League. <laughs> oh my God, that really shows how far you've come in just a few years, right? You absolutely boss in the Europa League group against the team who were in the quarterfinals last year. And only f- four years ago, you were getting knocked out literally two years in a row in qualifying by a team who got relegated from Romania. So, yeah, things have definitely changed a lot. Question number eight, um, our final question. We do this with everyone. Apart from England, which nation or nations has the biggest contingent of players in the current West Ham first team squad, including low knees? So I'll give you a clue. There's two countries. Obviously, England has like 10 players, whatever. And then there's two countries who are tied with the the most other players. France and the Czech Republic. Correct. Very good. France have three. Kurt Zuma, Alphonse Ariola on loan, I think, and Issa Diop. And the Czech Republic Mm -hmm. have Vladimir Kufal, Thomas Suchek, and Alex Kral. And that gives us, I think, six out of eight, which is a very respectable score. Um, Above average, I would say. So, James, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure chatting Absolute to you. Before pleasure. you go, would you mind um, telling the listeners where they can uh, watch your stuff, read your stuff, anything like that, anything at all? Okay, so my YouTube channel is called From the Anvil, colon, West Ham United. That is From the Anvil, colon, West Ham United. It's on 256 subscribers right now. You can get on that for West Ham content. I do game previews, game reviews. Um, social media reactions, reactions to posts about West Ham in the media. I do the channel as as often as possible. It's usually every single day I'm uploading anyway. My social medias are at from the Anvil WHU on Twitter and Instagram. And my own journalism account is James Snedden WHU. Okay, James, thank you so much for that. Again, it's been a real pleasure. Best of luck to you um, for this season. I really hope um, as a neutral, obviously, um, I've got no dog in the fight, so obviously I want West Ham to get in the top four. I think everyone else does. So best of luck for the season. I really thank hope you. that you'll get something done thank and uh, hopefully catch you again down the line. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. Please like, share and leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. This is crucial to a show of our size. 
Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend online or offline that really helps a small podcast like ours to grow organically. Head to www.sportscost.com for live streams, data, statistics, and much more from the world of football. You can also follow us on Twitter at sportscost.com. You can follow myself at Craig Sportscost. We'd love to read out the thoughts and questions of our listeners, so please feel free to tweet those to me anytime or send us an email to show at sportacost.com with your opinions or your questions, and we'll get to those on the next episode. Thanks again to James for coming on to speak to us today. Thanks so much to you for listening, and see you on the next episode of the Sportacost Football Stories Podcast. Podcast Network.